Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to talk about Abram's, or Abraham's, final exam. Um, It's not something that I think you're unfamiliar with. I was talking to my granddaughter, and she knew this story, front, center, and end. But I think that there is much that we can learn from this. Now, Mary and I have... um, been in situations where we've had to evaluate uh, folks for ministry to see if they would be able to be involved in ministry. And just think for a moment if you had that position where you had to evaluate a couple's character for Christian service, I wonder how Abraham and Sarah would fare How would you grade them? Well, we know Abraham had the call of God, but he hesitated in Haran, didn't he? He heard the promise of God, but lied to Pharaoh, calling Sarah his sister. He heard the promises again and again, and yet he repeated the same sin, saying Sarah was his sister with King Abimelech. So there's a pattern there. And he attempted to have Eliezer become his heir, and then the son of his wife's maid. Even though Yahweh informed him that within a year Sarah would have a son, being old and past her time of childbearing, she laughed. How would you evaluate these candidates? Well, God patiently and mercifully looked at their imperfections and shined through, just like that song just said, amazing. It's really true. And I think we are way, way prone to quickness rather than patience when it comes to others. Because God patiently and mercifully continued to love and mature the couple. His loving kindness is everlasting. It endures forever. And he is doing something in and through the lives of this couple. Now, it wasn't so much about the couple, but that's what we glean, right? That's our contact point. Of course, it's all pointing to his faithfulness, his decree, his plan for a Messiah to come through Abraham. But we look at Abraham's life and Sarah's life, and we can glean practical principles that we can apply to our lives. So in Genesis 22, it's time for Abram's final faith exam. We've followed him through a lot. And the very first verse in Genesis 22 pretty much gives us the context. It says, now came about after these things that God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. This is a story, it's a narrative, and it's devoid of all the, but the facts of the account. It, it doesn't give a lot of details surrounding it. Nothing's mentioned about the feelings of either Abraham or Isaac, but our imaginations run wild when we think, what must that have been like, right? Because we always insert ourselves 
in a story. Abraham goes through this test with God alone. We read nothing of his speaking with Sarah about the test. He doesn't share the details with Isaac, his only son. Instead, he's alone with God in this test. He alone heard God's command to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. He rose early and set out keeping his thoughts to himself, and he walked for two days quietly, thinking of the implications, and went forward alone in submissive obedience. The testing of faith is always experienced in solitary and intimate fellowship with God. The believer is alone. Others may see, they may consider, but the actual testing is experienced by the saint alone. The life of faith is a solitary path. The testing of God like birth and death is not something shared with another. These are times when we are alone with our God. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this final exam that God brought Abraham through, we are laying ourselves open for examination of our own hearts. And Father, we may not be asked to sacrifice our son, but there are points in our life where you ask us to believe in you for the impossible, for something that's beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to comprehend why you would be asking it of us or presenting us with a circumstance that just goes beyond what we can conceive of. And yet, we know we have you and you are faithful. And so, Father, I would pray that this morning our hearts would be soft, pliable, open in the hands of the Spirit of God to do with us what he will and that we might bring you much glory through our responses to your word today. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see the story begin. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Our hearts are afflicted with a love to possess things. All of us have this illness, this disease. We want to possess things. It's in our heart to possess things. Maybe it's in our heart to think more highly of ourselves than we ought in our vocation, our calling in life, our jobs. Maybe it's our dreams that are the focal point of our wanting to possess them, see them realized, and relationships, of course. Tozer once said this, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life 
whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could ever do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease, my and mine. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up the rootlets lest we die. Tozer is good. Anything you can get by him and read, you will be benefited by it. We want to possess things, property, houses, cars, rings, keepsakes, an old sweatshirt with our team name on it. I'll never forget a tribal guy come walking down the path with a Redskins, that's the old name of the commanders, a Redskins t-shirt on. And I was sitting on the porch with my colleague, Daryl, and he said, that guy's wearing a Redskins shirt. Wait, wait, that's my Redskins shirt. (laughs) We used to give our t-shirts away to the tribal people and his wife thought that one was ready to be given away. (laughs) Daryl was possessing that t-shirt, hard and true. But we're given all things freely to enjoy. It's not that things are bad. It's, it's when the thing gets its meat hook into us and, and we begin to try to possess it. And as far as our careers, our vocations, some people think of their jobs and they become who they are. Their jobs become them. They become their jobs. They can't separate them. This can happen with pastors. And I've seen the transition from a pastor to retirement go very hard on pastors or pastor's wives when the pastor dies and the lady is left to no longer be a pastor's wife. Possession claims that that's who I am. No, no, that's wrong. That's wrong-headed, that's wrong. But we can do it with our, our work In the secular world as well, we become the job that we do, and that is wrong. Dreams, when we're young, dreams tend to spur us on, and we can endure a lot of setbacks because we're young, and we just pick ourselves up and keep on pressing. Success in any field may exact a price, and for some, the cost may be obscured, but the desire to possess the goal is strong. And what's lost in the process could be dear and irreplaceable. I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen destroyed because the man or the woman has pursued a career to the detriment of their relationship with their wife or their husband and their family. It's not unheard of to let a career overrun us. And relationships... This is perhaps one of the areas where all of us can relate. Most of us have experienced young love and lost it. (laughs) It's disastrous. When you lose a relationship with which you were possibly too possessive, you thought this was 
it. The potential to allow our sense of possessiveness to dominate a relationship is easier than you may expect expect or think. A parent with their children. There comes a time where parents need to release the child and launch, right? That's very difficult for some parents to do. It's very difficult for some children. Or a romantic relationship when it's over. I'm not talking about marriage. I said romantic relationship because God hates divorce. I know it happens, but God hates it. And when you see the implications of divorce, it's like two pieces of paper that are glued together. I mean glued together, and you take them apart. There's damage to both pieces of paper. But a romantic relationship when one becomes too possessive and the other pulls away. It's devastating, isn't it? Well, I think Abram's test came in the area of relationship. I really do. Would his love of Isaac cause him to abandon God and disobey his command to sacrifice his son, his only son? There are two points of conflict in this test that God brought before Abram. Abraham's love for his son was the first. Abraham waited 25 years for the promise of this son. He witnessed God do the impossible, the miraculous birth. Sarah was well past childbearing age, and Abraham's body is as good as dead. But with God, nothing's impossible. Isaac was born, and they laughed. And his name means laughter. Isaac at this time was a young man old enough to carry wood for a burnt offering up a mountain. He wasn't just a little top. And there's no doubt that Abraham's relationship with his son is in focus here in this part of the story because no less than 14 references are to Isaac, his son. Take now thy son, thy only son, whom you love. So he took with him Isaac, his son. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. And Abraham answered, here I am, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And he bound his son, Isaac. And he took the knife to slay his son. You've not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham offered the ram in the place of his son, your only son. So we are laser focused on Isaac here. And Abraham's relationship with Isaac is expressed in verse 2 with the first usage of the word love in the Bible. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Whom you love. Not the love of a mother for her child or the love of a man for his wife but the love of a father for his only son. Corey Ten Boom once uh, said that we are to hold on to everything with our hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Abraham was facing a test to release, to let go. And so the first aspect of conflict is seen in Abraham's intent love for his son Isaac. 
whom Abraham is to offer as a sacrifice, a burnt offering to God. Now the second aspect here is Abraham's confidence in the promises of God. There's a conflict here. He loves his son, and all the promises of God are tied up in that son. From the very first we hear of Abraham, though it be faulty faith and lapsing faith, he was a man of faith because he took God at his word and he submissively left his own country and his family to go to a land. And I know he got hung up in Haran. And I know that all the other foibles and failures of faith that we've studied together were present. But all the way through, he returns to God stronger in his faith each time. The Abrahamic covenant promised him a land, the promised land, a seed, a posterity of numerous descendants, and a blessing that one of those descendants would be Messiah through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is what was at stake. This was the Abrahamic covenant. And all God's covenant with Abraham was predicated upon Abraham having a son. And this is a tall order for a man who is married to a barren woman. But nothing is impossible with God. And God gave him the son with his name being Isaac, and now God is telling Abraham to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loved, and the one within whom all the promises of God are to be realized and to offer him as a burnt offering, which means completely consumed. No more. Nothing left. And this is a conflict. How could this possibly be? Ah, but faith. Faith brings both sides of the conflict together. That's what faith does. Listen and see what God reveals to us through Abraham. Understand what faith is and what faith does. Abraham took these two disparate facts, his love for Isaac and all the promises that were tied up in Isaac, and even though he knew not how, he believed God. He went forward. He believed and obeyed God. Abraham remembered well the word of God at another time in his life when he was faced with a situation that seemed completely impossible. When his barren wife, well past the age of childbearing, and he, his body as good as dead, we're told, was told by God that they'd have a son next year at this time. And God spoke into his confusion at that time and all of his doubt. And he said, is anything too difficult for the Lord, for Yahweh? At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And as Abraham listened to God's command, we don't have to run to our imagination to try to understand what Abraham was thinking because God has already revealed what Abraham's thoughts were to us in Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 17 through 19, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, right where we are, offered up Isaac. And he, 
who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He went through the whole scenario in his mind. It was a completed fact. And he obeyed. This is the apex of faith, the pinnacle from which Abraham moved forward in faith, and I believe why God calls him his friend. This is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance means the very substance, the the firm, resolute thing. The conviction means it's the proof of, the evidence of. And these are things that aren't seen. Things that are hoped for. And Abraham, even in the midst of these conflicting passions, the love of his son on the one hand, the promises of God on the other hand, and when it seemed that hope is against hope, command against promise, right at this point, faith cries out. It happened with Job. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. It happened with Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. This will engaged. Faith is intentional. They engage their will. I think it's the completion of faith. I think when the will is activated, it's the completion of faith. Because the Lord was Abraham's strength, he went forward obediently, submissively in faith. Now look at verses 3 through 8. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, uh, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two of them were walking on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. (laughs) This stuff is so good, people. So good, and we need it so badly. We've been looking at the inner workings of the test of faith and how Abraham was dealing 
with the incredible command from God, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. And now he puts feet to his faith. It's one thing to cultivate faith in the heart and mind. It's another altogether to act in a real-life situation to the faith that's held so close. And it's true that obedience is complete when the inward surrender of the will is complete, but the outward act motivated such by such resolve is the completion of that faith. How many of us know people that say, I believed in Jesus. I remember when I walked down the aisle at the Billy Graham crusade, whose lives are shipwrecked now. Because the faith that they had wasn't saving faith. It wasn't enacted upon. It didn't last. It was like that faith in the story of the soils and the seed that goes in, right? So early in the morning, Abraham rose up and he went on his way. And now there are evidences of the inner fortitude of faith in Abraham with which he went forward. There was no hesitation. The next morning after God had appeared to him and gave him the command, the next morning he got up. There wasn't any argumentation that we read of. He was resolved to do exactly as God had said. He rose early in the morning and he obeyed God. He split the wood for the offering. So no hesitation. He was quiet. It ruled over his soul. The intentionality of faith. And two days to think, but nothing is mentioned of talk on that trip. Two days to ponder, but Abraham set his face as a flint toward the destination to which God had sent him. And Abraham's inner faith was a testimony to those around him. It testified. It was fruitful in its testimony. Verse 5 shows Abraham's unwavering confidence in the fact that he assured the servants that he and Isaac would go over there, do the offering, the sacrifice, and we will return. He told them they would return. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. It's implicit in that, that he expected to return with the lad to the two men. And verse 8, Abraham's answer to his dear son's question of where the lamb for the offering was going to come from displays his hope and confidence and assurance and conviction in God, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The need would be provided for by God himself. Look at verse 9. And then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know 
that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. In the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Man, the sacrifice of Isaac was already accomplished in the heart of Abraham and had been for some time already when he left on his trip to go to the mountain that God would make him aware of. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Faith is always at the brink of impossibility. I'm going to say that again. Faith is always at the brink of impossibility. It's always one step away from the brink. A step further and it's all over. But God. Abraham moved forward in faith without any outward indication that deliverance was at hand. He arrived at the place where sacrifice with no visible single sign of aid present. He piled the wood for the burnt offering without any hint of relief. He tied up his gown, took his son, tied him up, no doubt deliberately moving slowly, reluctantly but obediently. He took the knife in his hand, trusting God alone. He took the knife in his hand, trusting God alone. There's, there's a, a quote that I've always loved from the early days of my regeneration. Nothing before, nothing behind. The steps of faith fall on the seeming void, the brink, and find a rock beneath. Abraham raised the knife to complete his obedience, and at that moment, faith triumphed. It was done already in his heart. But he raised his knife and he hears, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand, a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. And when Abraham resolved in his heart, not when he walked for two days, not when he 
resolved in his heart. But when he actually was going to fulfill it by an act, God said, enough, enough. At the last moment, never before it. Never until we have found out how desperately we need it and never too late comes the helper. McLaren said that. At that moment when Abraham's faith was in demonstration, God said, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. How is it that God knows it's the last moment? How desperate do we have to be before we finally say, I give up, and we turn it over to God, right? I mean, I know that it came at a point in my life when I was 19 years old. That was the first time. That was for salvation. But how many times through my life have I had to be brought to the very brink? You know, it's said that guys always start the project and work at it and work at it, and then they read the instructions, right? That's kind of like us with God. We try and try and try to take care of it ourselves until we're at the brink, and we finally go, oh, God, help. And he's like, (laughs) glad you made it. And his hand goes out. Peter, when he's sinking, I say for the third time, right? He's going under. And he says, Lord, save me. Immediately, it says, the Lord's hand went out. Why didn't God's hand, why didn't Jesus' hand go out before he said, Lord, save me? Do you ever think about that? He brings us right to the brink so that our faith is completely in him. When we realize there's nothing that we can do, nothing. Faith changes everything. A most marvelous thing occurred when God said, don't touch the boy, now I know that you fear me. In the midst of an incredible deliverance, God did provide the lamb for a sacrifice just as Abraham had prophesied, didn't he? Isaac, lying bound on the altar, helpless to do anything for himself, to save himself, is delivered by another. Don't miss that. God provided a substitute to die in place of Isaac. The ram died and Isaac lived. That is such a clear foreshadowing of one greater than Isaac that was to come. Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died in our place that we may live forever. All of us are Isaacs tied up on the altar, laying on top of the wood, ready to be sacrificed when Jesus comes into our life. At the brink. There's nothing we can do. We're tied on the altar. What did Isaac do to save himself, to deliver himself? Nothing. And until we realize that, we really don't experience saving faith. Until we realize there's nothing we can do to get ourselves off that altar, to save our own lives, it's only God. John eight fifty six. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. (laughs) He saw it and was glad. Abraham, by faith, saw Jesus Christ. How did Abraham see it? 
He saw it in at least three distinct ways. Number one, he entered into the fellowship of suffering with a greater father who spared not his own son but gave him up a ransom for many. Why did God call him a friend? He entered into an experience with the father giving up his own son. Number two, he understood in type And through personal experience, the ransom procured by another, the substitute slain on behalf of his son. And although, therefore, Isaac to live, allowing Isaac to live on and not die as a sacrifice, Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place and paid the Father fully, satisfying all of our sin debt. And we, by such a payment, are free to live eternally, just as Isaac was free to get up off of that altar and be with his father and return to the two servants. Another, even the Lord Jesus Christ saves us. And thirdly, Abraham received Isaac again to himself as if from the dead. And the heavenly father received his only begotten son once again. After the third day, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. This was a crowning testimony of the father's complete satisfaction with a son's sacrifice. Never preach the gospel to someone without including the resurrection. It's God's stamp of approval. Abraham is called the friend of God. The intimacy of his friendship is deepened through that shared experience and with God in testing Abraham. He brought him into a depth of shared experience, never again shared until the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Are you going through a tough time right now, believer? Are you finding it kind of hard to have hope, to believe? It's not by mistake that you're going through a hard time. That's the way God works. You might think, well, how can God do that and tell Abraham to offer his son? My gosh, what a horrible God. Oh, really? You know nothing of God. Nothing. If that thought even crossed your mind, you know nothing of God. It's not a story about Abraham, and it's not even mainly about his faith or even about Isaac. It's all about Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient Savior. In 22.14, we read, And Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. And it's said to this day, In the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. Abraham naming of the place deflected away from himself. It deflected away from his faith and even away from his beloved son Isaac and it focused totally on a future act of a savior. The name Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh provides, was meant to focus our attention on God and his saving work on a hill yet future to Abraham but well known to us in history, Golgotha, Calvary. Abraham didn't name it the Mount of Testing. He didn't name it the Mount of My Obedience or the Mount of My Faith or the Mount of My Son's Submission or any other such name relating back to himself, his faith, or the personal experience he had just come through by the help of God. Nope, he named it 
Yahweh will provide. All focus on Yahweh and Jesus who provided. In a real sense, it's a prophetic statement pointing to the future substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So where is your point of impossibility this morning? Time for application. Time to take it home, okay, to us. Where is your point of impossibility? I mean, I look out amongst you. I know many of your faces, and I know some of your points of impossibility because you've been vulnerable enough to share them with me. The truth of the matter is, believe God. Believe him. Believe God and his faithfulness. Or will you drop back and trust your own abilities to handle it? Some of us have children that aren't believing yet. Don't give up. Trust God. He is able. And he thrills to do the impossible. That's where he really sails. The lesson we take away from Abraham's final exam is that God is trustworthy. You can believe him. Take him as his word and follow him even though you may not understand what you're going through right now. Your faith will grow in relation to the number of times that you trust him. It's really simple. Faith grows. Did you know that? It's kind of like a muscle. If I were to take a dumbbell that is, let's be realistic here, 15 pounds, and I began to do this for a half hour every day, well, for the next three or four days, I'm probably not going to be able to put on my T-shirt, right? It's been a while. But after three or four days, that muscle gets torn down, then it begins to build up. And pretty soon, I'm doing it with a 20-pound, then a 25-pound. And then I might even graduate to actual weights. That's how... That's how faith works. You know, some of us, we got in by our initial faith. We're having a struggle with ongoing faith, the sanctification process, right? We're struggling with a sin habit. We're struggling with trusting him to provide for us. Here, take this to the bank. His name is Yahweh will provide. That's the name of God. He will provide. Hold him to it. He doesn't provide your wants. He provides what you need. So you might have a checkpoint there, but he will provide. Don't give up. You know, we read in the New Testament, don't lose heart in doing good because in due season you will reap if you do not grow weary. Now there's some interesting words in that little phrase there, in that little sentence. Due season. That means time, people. And we're not good with that because we're really way ahead of God most of the time. But in due season, at just the right time, at God's time, you will reap, that's a promise, you will reap if you don't grow weary. Don't give up. Abraham waited 25 years and then another dozen or so years before God solidified his faith and said, for now I know that you fear God. Because you haven't withheld your son, your only son for me. God was all and all to Abraham at that point 
just as it should be. In closing, I want to just challenge you to just examine your heart. Where's your point of impossibility right now? Is it in a relationship? Is it in your vocation? Is it in things? Where's your point of impossibility? Where is God asking you to trust him? I know I've got a number of them. (laughs) And it just never ceases to amaze me that you can keep coming to points of impossibility in your life. It's like, come on! How long, Lord? Well, until we're with him, I think, in heaven, right? Listen to this little poem. Success is failure turned inside out. Success is failure turned inside out. The silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far. So stick to the fight when your hardest hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. Believe me, I can testify that that's true. From years of experience of trusting him at the point of impossibility and seeing him come through, sometimes to my chagrin, because he did it even though I didn't trust him. The impossible thing, he did it, even though I didn't trust him. I don't know if it's happened to you. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, it probably has. Where he just shows you, see, I can do it. And you just kind of hang your head and go, (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't think you could. We're like that, aren't we, as people? Well, be encouraged. This is Abraham. And it goes on and, Sarah dies, and then Abraham dies, because we all die, or we're going to be raptured, right? But until then, let's walk in faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Abraham's incredible life experience and all that he has taught us. And thank you that you don't just give us the good points and the high points and the the highlights of the life of your children in the Bible, but you show us their failures, you show us their setbacks, and in all of these things, you show us how faithful you are, and patient, and loving, and kind, and merciful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.